Um, I grew up here in Austin, so I have always loved Austin. But when I met my husband, Glenn, um, he was from Houston. We moved there, and uh, I quickly was trying to convert him. But at one trip out to St. Luke's on the lake, overlooking Lake Travis, and he was like, all right, I'm in, you win. And here we've been. I'm Paula Four with Springdale Farm, and this is I Love You So Much. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated. I'm your host, Tali Mosley. I'm Omar Gayaga. And I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Lady Bird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman. This week, Omnivore's Dilemma author Michael Pollan, who comes to Austin February 2nd, joins us to talk about his forthcoming book, How to Change Your Mind, where he pivots from food to psychedelics. Film critic Joe Gross comes in to talk about the Archangel episode of the season's Black Mirror on Netflix and whether it reflects our own helicopter parenting tendencies. Will Austin soon be home to a major league soccer team? We chatted with Statesman sports writer Kevin Lytle about Crew SC, the pro soccer team possibly coming to Austin, and the controversy surrounding its proposed stadium. In this week's web report, Eric Webb quizzes us on the relative size of the great state of Texas. And we'll conclude with a toast, a set of recommendations of things we feel you should be checking out right now. Let's start with Michael Pollan, who dove deep into the history of LSD and why elephants get drunk. He even used himself as a consciousness-altering guinea pig. Michael Pollan, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you, Tolly. <laughs> so, diving right into your forthcoming book, How to Change Your Mind, LSD was first discovered in the 40s, and back then you write that it seemed to have an incredibly promising outlook for scientists and psychiatrists. Why then did it develop its dangerous reputation just a few decades later? Yeah, well, it's interesting, the whole trajectory of the of the drug. And um, when it was first discovered, and it was discovered by accident by a Swiss chemist named Albert Hoffmann, and um, he was looking for something completely different, as often happens in the history of pharmaceuticals, and uh, accidentally ingested a tiny, tiny, tiny amount, which had a profound, profound, profound uh, effect on him. Mm-hmm. Um, but no one knew what it was really good for. Everyone knew it was probably the most psychoactive compound anyone had ever discovered in that it would completely change your consciousness and experience of the world at doses smaller than anything that had ever registered before, measured in micrograms. Um, so they thought it'd be good for something, but they didn't know what. And so there was this research project that was kind of crowdsourced, actually. Sandoz, the company that held the patent, uh, offered it to any researcher, really wow. anyone with a piece of stationery, um, to, uh, to, for free to experiment with. And so that started this very fervent uh, decade, decade and a half of research all over the world of people trying to figure out what this might be good for. And they went through various incarnations of thinking it was uh, maybe a good drug to simulate madness and help shrinks understand what it's like to be mad by taking it themselves uh and it was it was actually first called not a psychedelic but a psychotomimetic because it imitated psychosis and then when they realized well it's actually not that much like psychosis although outwardly it might look that way 
Um, and they found that people were, instead of having these horrible experiences, were having these incredibly positive and productive experiences on the drug. So then they began looking at it as a, as a therapeutic agent um, for a, a succession of different indications, including alcoholism that was very popular and, and, and indeed had some very good results, uh, anxiety, depression, obsession, things like that. But then so pretty quickly it, it the does. government swept, swept in and said, no fun for you. No therapy well, for you. Not, not quite then. Not till the mid '60s. The interesting thing is, it was it was legal till the mid '60s, and not completely banned till 1970. Um, and the government and the media, everybody really supported it. Um, Time. One of one of the most surprising findings when I was doing this research is that Time Life, the 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 media empire, was one of the great promoters of LSD and psilocybin, uh, which is the magic uh, magic mushroom chemical. Um, because uh, Henry Luce and Claire Booth Luce were getting LSD treatment in L.A. and, and, were, and felt they were benefiting from it. And uh, so there's a turn that happens in 1965, and it's, it's rather abrupt. And this is after Timothy Leary begins kind of becoming an evangelist of LSD. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that happens, I think, when you research these drugs is that there's a, a kind of a rational exuberance that takes over. And people felt that, um, oh, my God, this is so powerful and this can do so many wonderful things for people. Everybody should use it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's wrap up this research. And that's kind of where Tim Leary came out. And that, and it became a drug of the counterculture. And, and Nixon calling him the most dangerous man of our time. Dangerous man in America. Mm-hmm. Most dangerous man in America, which he also said about Daniel Ellsberg. So I don't know if he understood the meaning of the word most. Uh, but, <laughs> but both of them were had that title in his mind. And that, when you think about it, is pretty amazing that a, at that time a washed-up uh, psychology professor should be considered so dangerous. But Nixon had a sense that LSD was fueling the energies of the counterculture, and you know he was probably right. And so, you had a generation that was refusing to obey authority and mm-hmm. refusing to go to the war, and um, and he felt that the that that chemical was it bore at least part of the responsibility. Hmm. So it seems that since then um, the research support fell out. But you write that in recent years the work to understand. The potential of LSD, psilocybin, and DMT has resumed along with, and this is your quote, exploration of the once disquieting notion that these drugs might actually be able to improve the everyday lives of healthy people. So, Michael, where is this research happening and who's doing it? I just want to say, or are people just telling me that they're microdosing? for the heck of it without any research to back them up. <laughs> well, there is, you know, there is that. I mean, there's a couple strains of research, and, and they don't all deserve the word research. In fact, <laughs> people, Umbrella term. You know, use, they use the term search, uh, <laughs> I think, ironically. Uh, there is uh, a lot of microdosing going on out here, and I mean, I live in Berkeley in, in Silicon Valley. <laughs> you don't Valley, say. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, but there's no research to suggest it does anything or, or does what people think it does, and, and it's important to keep in mind that there's a very powerful placebo effect with these drugs, mm-hmm. or expectancy effect. If you think you're going to have a mystical experience, uh, you're likely to. If you think you're going to have a bad trip, you're much more likely to. Um, so... 
telling people that they're taking LSD and it's going to make them more creative or happier or whatever is is likely to have that effect, at least in the short term. But but the jury's out. I mean, we need to do research on microdosing. And in fact, in England, it's 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 about to start. So we'll have some ideas. But the research I'm, I focused on is research being done at, at prominent uh, institutions like uh, New York University's Medical School and uh, Johns, Johns Hopkins. And it was at those two schools uh, two institutions where this very interesting experiment giving psilocybin, not LSD, uh, although it, it's a very similar drug, it's just shorter acting, um, to people who had uh, life-changing diagnoses, often terminal cancer patients, who were struggling with anxiety and depression at the, at the approach of death. And they were given these drugs and a great percentage of them, something like 70 or 80 percent of them, felt that their uh, fear of death had been mm-hmm. substantially diminished. And in the case of several of them, it's funny, I, I wrote an article about this in the New Yorker a couple years ago, and I put in the article that um, so-and-so's, uh, this woman who'd had um, ovarian cancer, uh, her fear of death uh, substantially diminished, and the fact checker called her to check that uh, fact. And um, and she said, no, that's completely wrong. Wow. <laughs> My well, fear of death was eliminated. Wow. And I thought that that was such a stunning thing, that a, that a drug experience could actually reset how somebody thought about death, uh, that, I, that that was something worth exploring. Wow, that's really you know, powerful. Philosophically and, and psychologically. Well, I, speaking of death, I must admit that my favorite chapter in Cooked was about death and decay and fermentation. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> rot, you what know. you've always done in your books There's is... the gothic subtext to some of my work. I love it. But you basically kind of positive. Oh, yeah. You, you, I had never thought about uh, you know fermentation bet- being the dividing line between culture and also being mm-hmm. our everyday way to, to flirt with death and to flirt with... What is what is life? What is birth? What is health? What is what is unhealthy? What is you know? Because the difference between a, a piece of mold that's edible and and will help you, and one that is right. not going to help well, you, is very disgusting. thin. Yeah, but I well, just the whole idea of disgust as a as a very powerful human emotion that both, you know, I mean, it's Freud taught us that things that repel and attract us are often very similar. Wow. So, you know, you, you love digging, digging, using these, um, you know, for instance, like using food as a vehicle to dig deeper into human psyche, the origin of culture and even spirituality. You know, were you at all surprised with some of the lessons that you learned in this this journey to understand psychedelics? Maybe even in your own, you know, I, I, there's a hint that of your own experimentation with this uh, in the course of, process of writing the book. Well, there were many, many surprises. And I did. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, I like to experience what I'm describing and you know in cooked I learned how to cook and in place of my own I learned how to build a building uh, and in this one I, I did take uh, several guided uh, psychedelic journeys um, and uh, to learn what it was like because I was so curious to uh, to understand what people were experiencing and I had their descriptions but there's obviously nothing like doing it yourself okay so what were your takeaways Michael well, I had so it's many. It's hard to condense them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How has your life changed? Every journey was different. Um, I had one that was absolutely terrifying that I would never want to repeat. I had um, I had others that were um, uh, kind of extended meditations about the people in my life and, and um, that were, you know, helped me understand my parents and my mm. sisters in ways I hadn't before. Um 
But the most striking experience, I think, and this is something that many of the dying patients uh, experienced, is to, for the first time that I can remember, uh, experiencing the, the complete disillusion of your, of your sense of self or your ego. Mm-hmm. And most of us think that's who we are, and we're identical with our, our ego, this I that's constantly chattering in our head all the time. Um, but it goes away under a, a high-dose psychedelic experience, and you kind of, like, watch it vanish. And that can be very scary, or it can be very liberating. And since I'd been prepared for it and told not to fight it, and, and that's why having a guide is so is so important, because they really know what to say to avoid you getting into what can be serious psychological trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that you're your perceptions outlast your ego and that there is a, this very kind of dispassionate, disinterested way that you can experience reality without being so reactive or defensive or what's in it for me. Um, that was that was pretty mind-blowing and, mm-hmm. um, and carries over in certain ways because it, it gives you a little bit of distance on that character uh, who you think is the be-all and, and, uh, of ev- and, uh, and everything, uh, but it isn't. Uh, it's just a tool. It's a tool of your your mind. It's a tool of natural selection. It helps us get the job done, but it also gets in our way. So those kind of perspectives were were pretty um, surprising to me and exciting to to experience. Um, Did you but, have any reservations about talking publicly about that? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we were curious. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think we're in an era where we have a government that's eager to restart the drug war mm-hmm. and um uh and uh, but my reservations are not so much whatever personal risk i i um take on by talking about it but you also just don't want to encourage people willy-nilly to 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 dabble um because it's a really serious undertaking sure. and um unless you're being very well guided or ideally in one of these sanctioned trials and there will be many more of them in the next couple of years that people could could sign up for um, make no mistake people do get into trouble taking these drugs and they have um, terrifying experiences or, or accidents because they're not in control um, so I, I think I do feel a sense of responsibility in, in right. how I talk about it and, and well, make sure people understand yeah. that there are risks as well as as well as rewards Well, you also live in Berkeley, one of the vanguards of progressive thought, and you're coming to Austin. We're safe to say that I think our reading public will be very um, intrigued by the subject matter. So we wanted to ask you, Michael, what thoughts do you have about a progressive city like Austin that's trying to play catch up in some ways with, um, you know, what you've got going on in the West Coast, you know, soda taxes, bag bans, you know, you travel enough around our country to observe, you know, whether things are becoming more segmented or if there is, in fact, cultural progress being made. I think at the local level, there's all sorts of cultural progress being made. I mean, you, you mentioned soda taxes. I think that's a really interesting um, phenomenon, and it, and it did indeed start. The first winning soda tax was in Berkeley, and now they're spreading all over the country as... <laughs> As people realize, it does reduce soda consumption. Uh, a 20% tax uh, will reduce it about 20%, we found. And um, it becomes a source of revenue for local towns and helps the public health. Um, you know, there are arguments against it that you can make, that it, it disadvantages people with less money, but that's always true with, 
when you when you have syntaxes of one kind or another. Um, so I, you know, I think that the, especially under this administration, the the laboratories for innovation are going to be cities, municipalities, towns, and states, and I think we will see that. And California has really kind of made made that innovation its identity. I mean, we're sure. you know we're proceeding on uh, with very aggressive climate change uh, legislation and and so far it's been working and we're proceeding with these various public health measures around food uh yeah litter too the bag thing and you know i mean i was totally annoyed when that bag thing came in i mean i would find myself at the store and you know being charged an extra 10 cents for bags and <laughs> it was a pain and then but you know what within a month my trunk, the trunk of my car filled up with market bags, of which okay. there are way too many in the world right now. <laughs> and um, it was, I don't even think twice to grab one when I'm going into a store. So, you know, these little, these little nudges in, um, that, that are being um, applied are very interesting as a, as a kind of a social uh, engineering, uh, which is essentially what it is. And I know some people resent it, um, but I think the proof's in the pudding. Is it, is it really helping with the problem or not? Does that mean Just, people are more receptive to your message of eating mostly plants? Yeah. I mean, and food that your grandmother would recognize? Is, yeah, meat consumption. I, I mean, a lot of people have been talking about the problem with eating too much meat, which which is a health problem and an environmental problem. Uh, and a, a moral problem, I think, if you care about the welfare of animals. And um, uh, and overall, meat consumption is not down, um, even though you hear so much more talk about things like Meatless Monday and, and you see more vegetarian fare in restaurants and interest in eating you know, vegan and vegetarian. However, among millennials, among younger people, um, there does seem to be a change uh, in their attitude toward meat eating and some evidence of declining uh, meat consumption. Uh, and I don't know if that's being driven by environmental or, or moral considerations, or both. They're, mm-hmm. not, they're not at odds with one another. Um, so the story is getting out there. Um, uh, you know, the animal welfare and rights movement has done an amazing job getting the public's attention on this issue. Um, but also the environmental movement is, is really helping people to see that of all the ways you contribute to climate change, and you're, and you're certainly aware of your driving or the way you heat your house or whatever it is, um, or food waste, um, but you're very likely your biggest contribution to climate change, if you're a meat eater, is your meat eating. And, uh, and if it's not the biggest, it's the second biggest. And if you want to do something now to diminish your carbon footprint, that's where you start. Not, not necessarily eliminating meat, but, but reducing it. Um, and that's something within our power. And I know, you know, Texas is a big meaty state. Um, <laughs> you got that and, right. <laughs> uh, and I, I eat meat, and I think meat is wonderful food in many ways, and I'll defend meat eating of a, of a pretty constricted kind. I mean, I, I don't eat feedlot meat. Um, but I do eat grass-fed beef and, and um, you know, pastured chickens and things like that when I can find them, which isn't that often, so I end up not eating a lot of meat. Um, I mean, I think meat is something that we should savor, and um, but right now we're really profligate in the way we eat meat. I mean, you know, the average American is eating over well over a half a pound per person per day. Wow. Well, your message um, certainly has, I, I feel like, has reached a lot of ears, even if people's behaviors aren't changing. I think they're at least aware of it in, you know, in different different parts of the country, you know, not just in the progressive cities, not just in the 
you know, the places like Austin. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Michael. We really appreciate it. We hope our listeners turn out to your show on February 2nd, and we will link to all the information that you need to know how to get there in our show notes. Well, thank you both. It was great talking to you, and I look forward to seeing you in Austin uh, in a couple weeks. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate you. You're very welcome. here to discuss Archangel, the season four episode of Black Mirror that is about helicopter parenting. We are all parents at this table, Tali Mosley, Joe Gross, and I. And boy, that was that was a lot of Black Mirror episode, wasn't oh, it? Oh my God. So here's the thing. Ross and I have discussed the merits of chipping Nico or not before. Chipping by, by which you mean inserting Yeah, a like, a, like a GPS tracker. Into your child. Right. And this episode just went ahead and played that out for me. <laughs> <laughs> how'd, that, how'd that turn out, Mom? <laughs> wow. You want to low jack so, <laughs> your kid, huh? <laughs> well, we've talked about it before, and like traditionally Ross is on the pro side and I was on the con side, but I was con because my thinking was the bad guys could then find a way to get it out of her, you know? Um, but this this is also presents a con side, but for a completely different reason. Yeah. Well, let's back up a second before we get deeper into this. So Black Mirror is a show that started in England. It's an anthology show, which I always try to explain. It's like Twilight Zone, but technology. <laughs> uh, Black Mirror is basically obsessed with what technology is doing to us, the implications, the ethical stuff, and it generally ends up pretty scary. Like, this is the, the worst case scenario of how this technology could play out. Or Mallory Ortberg's genius summation, which was... What if phones... But too much. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, so, yeah. So the show moved to Netflix in the third season. We're now up to the fourth season, and there were six new episodes that were released recently uh, right around New Year's. And this one, Archangel, is the second episode of the fourth season, directed by Jodie Foster. And it is, I mean, at its at my least charitable, I would say it's like an after-school special about what happens if you're a parent who is way too helicoptery and and you have a technological assist to track your kid. Yeah. Uh, so there's like three or four things going on in this episode. One is a techno- technology is called Archangel where you can actually view whatever the kid views. You can see through their eyes. There's the GPS tracking. You can see wherever your kid is. There is the feature where you can block content. Describe that joke because that's a freaky one. Yeah, it's just sort of turning off what your it's turning off what your kid can see, right? Based well, on their there's cortisol. a filter. There's a filter, so it like takes a scary dog barking and it just turns it into like a highly pixelated, muffled sounds like object. Yeah. So, so anytime your kid is exposed to porn or whatever, like it just like blurs it out into some. Well, what it does shape. is it 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 finds their heart rate, like it their cortisol spikes. And so that's the cue to then turn on the filter. And then there's a major plot point that hinges on being able to like monitor your child's health, any changes in their body. Yeah. So the 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 sort of uh, bad seed part of this episode is that what happens when they are a teenager? If this is great when they're a toddler and you can keep track of them and they don't mind that you see everything through their eyes. What happens when they're a rebellious teenager that uh, does not want you spying on every single moment of their life? Nor should you. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah. It. Uh, it I, I did not respond to it as positively as, as some people who are who are parents. I thought it was actually a little corny and sort of went in some kind of obvious directions. But I certainly understand why people loved it. Mm-hmm. I, I find most non-parents think the episode is ridiculous. Like, what parent would ever want to know where their kid is at all times? Like, well, yeah, well I mean, I, parents really. Well, something that I think that people who aren't necessarily parents don't quite appreciate is the extent to which a constant theme in your head as a parent is 
am I doing everything I can for my kid? Mm-hmm. And that is as much like, you know, I think societal pressure is a stupid phrase, but I can't think of a better one at the moment to, you know, am I am I doing everything that I can? Like, am I keeping up with the Joneses in terms of like making sure my kid is safe, making sure my kid has every opportunity and all that stuff. And this is a logical, becomes a logical extension of that. Man, see, like, I did not view it that way at all as keeping up with the Joneses. I saw this as a single mom struggling who has very little support systems and is trying to protect her daughter because of this incident where she wanders off. And then, um, like, her identity becomes enmeshed with her daughter's because she gives everything to her daughter. Yes. And so that's where the impulse comes from. Including some questionable smoothies. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, God! Forgot yeah, about that. Anyway. no, no, I wasn't. I wasn't necessarily. I, I should have clarified. I wasn't necessarily talking about this character, mm. but I, I was talking about the the urge to for you know the people who are non parents as a like, parent in is, the world. This is ridiculous, yeah. and it's like, yeah, well, actually, it. it's really not, but not necessarily for the reasons that you think. Right? Yeah. yeah now, now sure. they, there's a, a kind of a running theme in uh, Black Mirror about kind of moving consciousness over from your body to something else and then surveillance that's another big thing in Black Mirror and he loves this temple implant stuff yeah like this is like now the fourth or fifth episode where you can like put something in someone's forehead or a little like nubbin that you just stick on your, the side of your head and, and it knows whatever <laughs> bad things happen uh, yeah. and yeah and, that, and I actually wrote an article for 512 Tech about how plausible these technologies are and you know, this one, it would definitely not be as simple and easy and and small. Like, the, the technology is very mundane in this episode in that it's just a very tiny little needle implant and then a tablet, like an iPad that you just carry around. Well, see, Ross makes the argument that this is basically like a, a GoPro. So, like, if it was external, mm-hmm. I think the jump is the fact that it's internal, like that it's, like, inside of you, you know? Like, that's the jump that it can, like, somehow see out of your, like skin and tissues. You've inserted a camera into your child's eyes, basically, yeah, that yeah. you can see 24-7 wirelessly. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. So, okay, so without giving too much away, um, <laughs> we follow this girl into her teenage years, and there's this other character introduced early on in the episode named Trick. And he's the one to basically, like, after the mom makes the decision to turn the filter off and to turn Archangel to, like, bury it in the attic... Trick says, oh, my God, like, you can see stuff now. Well, let me introduce you to porn. Let me introduce you to hacksaw. Let me introduce you to, like, um, like terrorist videos. Um, and so Sarah, the young girl, is corrupted by this guy who then comes back and in later into her life as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And did you sort of think that maybe he'll, he'll be the bad influence, that, like, something bad will happen via him? But well, not so. Well, because actually what ends up happening is the mom, like, happens to catch them at every inopportune moment where he looks, you know, the, like the absolute worst, most stereotypical, like, bad-influenced teenager where he's yeah. actually a pretty nice kid who yeah. actually really loves this girl. Yeah. And, but she's only seen, you know, the parts. And I, I've heard arguments about, about this episode that it could have been done without any of the tech stuff where, you know, the mom just comes across letters or just comes across photos. Like, it could have been anything non-tech that would have led to the same... Yeah. Terrible climax. Yeah. It's and I, I think that's a, actually a pretty good point that they, you know, his his the the trick with with Black Mirror, I think, is to what extent I, I think you sort of judge the success on one of those episodes or one of the criteria that I use is to what extent could this story have worked? To what extent is this story 
dependent upon the technology that he introduces that mm-hmm. in, into the script. And um, I think one of the reasons that you know the the USS Callister episode works so well. Oh uh, my God! <laughs> is that <laughs> Love it. you know it it sort of it's this it ends up being this riff on on just you know lousy people in in gaming and just you know they're and just the idea that um that this is something that this is that it's a combination of a very real world sort of misogyny and misanthropy but would also not necessarily exist without this avatar culture without avatar culture right mm-hmm. exactly so uh, let's go around the table here. I'm curious uh, on a level of helicopter parenting, like where do you fall? Because I I think I'm pretty lax. I think my in my family, my wife is the more, you know, uh, taskmaster kind of like enforcer. Whereas I'm kind of like, oh, let them run in the streets. They'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> kind of where do you guys land on that? As far as like looking at this episode, like how far would you go? <laughs> I'm curious <laughs> to hear what what Joe will say because how old are your kids, Joe? Twelve and nine. Okay, so you've got one who's about to be a teenager. Yeah, we'll see how this goes. Um, I'm uh, <laughs> my natural inclination is to be pretty helicoptery, but I'm trying really hard a not to be, and b not to have it be gender specific. Like I'm trying to really think hard. Am I letting my son do something that I wouldn't let my daughter do, even though my daughter is older? Mm, yeah. That's interesting. Or is am I protecting him from something that I know he can probably handle even though she's older and then their their own personalities come into come into play you know what they're interested in like what their friends are doing and what uh, they don't do I mean I, again I'm I'm a pretty I'm a world-class warrior but I could totally go pro tomorrow like that woman who you know got onto the uh, you know the speed skating team after taking up the sport for four months. Like I could jump onto a uh, parental <laughs> worry Olympic team immediately, but I'm trying very hard not to be and to be less uh, high strung about it. Um, but I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm chipping my kids anytime soon. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so Nico is the age where Sarah starts out as, you mm. know, the one that like could follow a cat down to the train tracks. The three, four year old toddler. To stay yeah. There. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I actually don't think of myself as naturally very helicoptery. I think Ross is slightly more so. But um, <laughs> like, honestly, I see episodes like this and I, I kind of want to be. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, like, God, that would be you like... You were looking for the sign-up form at the end of the episode, like, <laughs> where do I get like, this technology now? Yeah. <laughs> like, Shut up and take my money. Or if there was, like, an expiration date, you know, so we're, like, at age, like, 11, it turned off or something, <laughs> then maybe I wouldn't mind that. I don't know. I mean, the great, the brilliant thing that Charlie Brooker does is he takes positive impulses and carries them out to their logical conclusion, you know, and, like, says, like, well, you might have gotten this, you might have signed on for this for like initially like a a very humane reason, but then we get dependent on this stuff and we can't imagine life without it and then it affects our relationships. Yeah, there, there's a great dig in the episode where, where they mention just offhand a couple of years later that like, oh yeah, this has been banned in, the, in, in Europe. In the UK, But not yeah. in the US. In the US, we're still cool with it. I know. Well, so what's interesting about it is like she does everything for her child, but what it ends up doing is eroding her trust in her child. Mm-hmm. You know, so she thinks that like her daughter 
isn't wise enough to then make some like quote unquote mistakes, like really just experimenting and then grow like all teenagers do and then ultimately be fine. And the daughter's agency, which that yeah. the scariest thing about the whole episode to me was every time the daughter would see something and it was just a blur, you know, the the, the blocked image. Like that was terrifying to me that the kid yeah. literally had no idea what she's even looking at. Yeah, that was right, that right. was a I, that was my that was my favorite part is that you know the the idea of of getting rid of that of getting rid of the image is much is much scarier because I, I mean we've all had that experience as children that our parents try to protect us from a particular thing and it just gets infinitely more terrifying because you don't know what right. it is. And um, and uh, so you can't you don't process it correctly. And uh, yeah, and all parents make that mistake. I'm sure I've made it. I'm sure my I know my parents did. And I don't mean that as a knock. I mean that like they were, you know, I, I you know, I remember a couple of instances where they like tried to protect me from a particular image. I ended up seeing it and being like way more scared of it than like I would have been. Because you didn't know how to self-regulate. Because I, I didn't. Well, yeah, I just didn't. Like if they were so freaked out by it, like. It amplified it amplified, fear. It, it amplified the fear, which I thought was a very clever mm-hmm. uh, element of that episode. Well, listeners, we are curious what you think about Black Mirror on Netflix. If you're watching it, let us know on Twitter. We are at loveaustin360. Parents, non-parents, let us know if you think we're completely off base or if you were interested in implanting a chip in your child like Tolly. Austin is one of the biggest cities in the country without a major sports team. But as an Ohio club lobbies to move here, some controversy has surfaced about where they might build a stadium. Kevin Lytle has been covering the news since it broke in October. Kevin, thanks for joining us in the studio. So tell us a little bit about what's going on with this Crew SC soccer team. All right, Addie. The... uh Major League Soccer team in Columbus, Ohio, the ownership of it has expressed a desire to move to Austin. They, they're they hot for Austin, let's just say that. Everybody wants to move Everyone to Austin. Everyone in Ohio wants to move to Austin. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so it's a successful team that's doing well up there, but that is just looking to relocate. And so they've, they've got their eye on a specific piece of land that is pretty prime real estate. Tell us about, that's kind of where the conflict is coming from, correct? It is at the moment. Um, they have their uh, heart set on... Butler Shores, which is uh, riverfront, lakefront, Ladybird Lakefront property there. And uh, it's also parkland, though, and precious parkland, and that's where the conflict comes in. And this is the part, it's it's kind of, uh, it's not Butler uh, Park where the big hill is. It's a little bit further west from there, closer to Zilker Park. Casa de Luz area. Casa de Luz area. Yeah, people get it confused very often with Butler Park, but this is Butler Shores on the south side. And right now it's being used for Little League, and, you know, the hike and bike trail goes there. But there's not a lot of parking. There's not a ton of space, uh, but, but they think they can fit a stadium in there and parking, but the city and, and some other people are maybe saying, hey, why don't we look at this other land, maybe by the Expo Center, or, right? I mean, tell me about, you know, there are definitely some forces at play here trying to not, trying to dissuade them from moving to that park, correct? Yeah, that's definitely true. But the deal here is that the owner of the Columbus crew, he, what he's offering is a privately financed stadium, about $200 million. But what he wants in return is 
prime real estate, mm-hmm. and uh, parkland would allow him, you know, not to have to buy buy the land and get a, you know, very mm-hmm. good rent deal. But uh, of course, parkland stirs up all kinds of issues with um, longtime Austinites, and people just want to get out and use the green. Don't want to lose any green, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's where the you know the city has identified eight sites for um, potential sites for a training facility or a stadium. And uh, some are on parkland and some are not, but it's the one on parkland and Butler Shores that these guys prefer the most. Like, how many people are we talking about going to these games? How many people would they expect to fill the stadium? They would build, they have a rendering of a 20,000-seat stadium there at Butler Shores. It's squeezed in, packed right in there, every nook and cranny of land taken up. But they left a little bit of the hike and bike trail there as well. Uh, So 20,000 would be the maximum capacity. And is there any chance that they might split the training facility with the stadium? They will. They will. They will, Omar. Uh, The training facility, I think you can pretty much bank on it being somewhere in East Austin because, uh, you know, that would be a good thing to do for East Austin neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what's the closest MLS team now to Austin? We have teams both in Houston and in Dallas. So there would be sort of a triangle, a Texas triangle Mm -hmm. of... uh, Major League Soccer. And it would also solve this question of when is Austin going to get a professional sports team, but this is not, for some people, this isn't the professional sport that they want. But talk to me about how soccer, just the love of soccer in Austin has changed since you've been covering that, you know, not covering this, but covering sports in general. Yeah. Well, um, I have been doing soccer or what we've had of soccer for the last five years. And uh, the deal is that we're, we're kind of an untapped and a little bit of an unproven market Addie, because um, we have not had much any success really with a few professional teams that at lower levels that mm-hmm. flamed out uh, for various problems. Mm-hmm. But our in in Austin, TV ratings are always really high for any uh, major or international soccer events. We're like a top ten U.S. market for TV ratings, and so people like this crew owner see that. And they latch on to all the demographic things you can imagine about Austin and all the millennials, Mm -hmm. and they just project it as a Portland type of market, which Mm -hmm. has been a huge success in the MLS. It seems like uh, in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, we had this large influx of immigrants from Mexico, Latin America, and that that seemed to fuel a lot of interest in soccer at that time, and it's continued. They know that they need to really... Uh, tap into the Hispanic market here, uh, Omar. And to that extent, they've already, the the crew ownership people, uh, pre-court sports ventures, they have hired some uh, Hispanic business leaders in the community to already help them with, you know, trying to introduce the concept and rally support for the stadium idea. So they're serious. This is not like, hey, we would like to go to Austin. What can you do for us? They're making real moves into getting Austin when the, up. when the story first broke, October 16th, uh, there were some national people that thought it was a ruse and, uh, you know, that they were just playing Austin for leverage against Columbus or any other cities. And here at the Statesman, you know, we wondered about that, too. But we've met with these guys, uh, you know, privately and publicly, and and they've spent a lot of money on this project. It's just really hard to imagine that it's that it's a ruse. And they have a city council meeting, very important date coming up in February, where at that point the council will make a more official declaration of the of what how much they want to play game. Yeah, on February 15th, the uh, city council will take up the, the soccer stadium topic, and it very well could be come to a vote of some sort. 
And they'll uh, a couple days before that, February 13th, they'll have a work session on it where they'll start debating it and all that. In the meantime, what's happening is uh, Richard Suttle, a very important name here. He's a, a, lo- a lawyer and lobbyist in town for pre-court, for the Columbus Crew Group. He is working on the city council members <laughs> one by one, trying to gain their support. The here. soccer lobby is here. So <laughs> lastly, what are you hearing from readers, both, you know, soccer fans, maybe casual fans, people who are just interested, you know, just who love Austin and want to see the city thrive? What are some of the different arguments you're hearing both for and against the team moving here and that particular site? Yeah, it's it's a real it's a real divide because most there are some soccer fa- haters out there who just you know never going to go for it. But most people seem to support the idea of you know yeah let's get our first major league professional franchise here. But then where where the debate breaks down is where you know you've got one group saying you know never on city parkland, which is understandable, and uh, then you have another group saying uh, you know I think this would be worthwhile. Butler Shores. Uh, is kind of run down, to be honest, and and uh, and the pre-court group would find a new place for the the little league teams mm-hmm. to play. They've guaranteed that and things like that. And so there is this group that says, you know, let's put it right downtown, where aesthetically it would be a huge hit. Now, could they use the stadium for anything else? Yes, they would use the stadium for things like uh, graduations and uh, concerts mm-hmm. and you know other things, of course. That raised the noise level, and mm-hmm. uh, you know that's definitely a, a a problem with that neighborhood. I've spoken with um, Ann Kitchen, the mm-hmm. councilwoman for that district, and she is very opposed to it. However, she is only one vote, and uh, mm-hmm. there will be eleven votes, and I've been told a simple majority wins the day. Wow. So, so journalists don't like to be pinned down to a specific prediction, uh, but if I if you were to give us a percentage of whether you think this is really going to happen and then another percentage of will it happen on that site? What do you think? Uh, Omar, great question. We've talked about doing sort of a daily percentage <laughs> meter. <laughs> just goes up and online. down every day. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, there's been so many twists and turns. And even Richard Suttle, who, like I say, is going to be one of the key people in either in making this happen, he's told me to expect many twists and turns. Oh, boy. But when um, a lawyer tells you that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think the way I would uh, couch it is that I, I think as long as the pre-court group, the owner, group is willing to take one of the non-parkland sites, which would include uh, a place up by the, near the domain called McCalla Place. I think they could get that one very easily. Um, the question is whether they want to do that or not. Butler Shores, I know you want a prediction. I still, I still think, no, that's going to be a bridge mm. too far. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for coming in and helping shed some light on this subject. It's really fascinating. And I know this year there's going to be a lot of changes ahead. Yeah, happy to happy to join you, Addie and and uh, Omar. We will return to this topic of soccer again, I'm sure, soon. Uh, let us know what you think. Hit us up at loveaustin360 on Twitter. Let us know what you think of soccer in Austin. Hey, Eric, it's great to see you. It's great to see you, Addie, and you, Omar. Thanks for being with us for the Web Report. What do you got? Okay, so you've heard that everything is bigger in Texas, but is Texas bigger than everything? Almost. It's a huge philosophical question for you. That's why I live here. <laughs> so this was the question that uh, was that, that came about on Texas social media as this meme started going around uh, last week. 
that was showing a scene from Star Wars, The Force Awakens. So not The Last Jedi, but The Force Awakens. And it's a scene where Poe Dameron, plays by, played by Oscar Isaac, shows the new Starkiller base in comparison to the size of the original Death Star from the original A New Hope. And he says, this was the Death Star, this is Starkiller base, which is bigger. And then someone has photoshopped and added a third panel that says, and this is Texas, and Texas <laughs> in this meme dwarfs the size of both. Which brought up the question, is Texas actually bigger than the Death Star and Starkiller Base? Okay, so what did you find? So, obviously, we're talking about fictional (laughs) interplanetary (laughs) weapons and a very real state. But I did a little research, and I looked at Wikipedia, (laughs) which is a resource that exists. With two eyes. Two eyes uh, and two E's. And to find out what the sizes of, first of all, the Death Star and Starkiller Base were. And there seems to be some debate because I think the numbers have changed depending mm-hmm. on what you're looking at. And then there's all kinds of crazy fan theories. That expanded say, universe. Expanded <laughs> universe. And then there's like some real message board <laughs> rabbit holes if you want to go down. So actually, the Death Star would have to be this big to support this, blah, blah, blah. So just bear that in mind. But according to uh, some numbers from various official Star Wars like visual guides, uh, if you're looking specifically at like width, like diameter, mm-hmm. Texas is bigger than the Death Star, either Death Star and Star Killer Base. Wow. So. I, I mean, I would presume so. I cannot imagine. I was going to say, I can't imagine something in space that's bigger than te- Texas, you know, except like Earth or any other planet. Except all planets. <laughs> all planets. Yeah. How, how do you even get that ship off the ground if it's bigger than Texas? Exactly. But well, a mechanical, something that people have, you know, made. It's like, where do you make something that large? Well, Starkiller Base, if you recall, is actually a planetoid itself that they have turned into a weapon. So oh. there is that. But, but, so now keep that's just diameter. If we're talking about actual area, which gets a little hinky because you're talking about a flat state versus these three-dimensional sphere, spherical objects. If you're looking at that, Texas is still bigger than the Death Star. However, it is not bigger than the surface area of Starkiller Base from uh, the newest trilogy. Wow. Okay, so that's all very fascinating. <laughs> now, <laughs> let's get to the real meat of this. Is Texas bigger than Brazil? Okay, well... You're going to ask me those questions, I can right? Tell you, I can tell you the answer is no, but yeah, I thought that we would do a little quiz. Okay, okay. And I will uh, give y'all... They're mostly countries, maybe with like one surprise in there. Okay. And uh, Addy and Omar, you'll tell me whether you think Texas is bigger or is not bigger than that particular place, object, person, thing, whatever. This Cha- is exciting. Challenge accepted, y'all. Mm-hmm. Okay, y'all. Okay, and all of this information has been pulled from previous American statesman reports and also a cool Texas Monthly article I found. So thanks, Texas Monthly. Thanks, Texas Monthly. So um, we'll start with Addy, and then we'll do Omar, and we'll do three and three, and we'll okay, see who, who gets the high score. Okay. So Addy, bigger than Texas or not bigger than Texas? Australia, bigger than Texas. Ding ding ding. Yes. That's correct. Australia is bigger than Texas. Omar, bigger than Texas or not bigger than Texas? Sudan, not bigger than Texas. Uh oh. Sudan is bigger than Texas. Sorry, Sudan. Wow. Please write a formal as apology if, to Sudan. As if Sudan hasn't suffered enough. Sorry. Okay. Addy, bigger than Texas or not bigger than Texas? The UK. Mm, not bigger than Texas. Ding, ding, ding. Yes. I'm getting these. Well, this is not going That's my like, way. <laughs> okay, Omar, I'll try to throw you a softball. Bigger than Texas or not bigger than Texas? France. Not bigger than Texas. That is correct. Yay. <laughs> okay. I've been there. Everything's small. Their cheese and pizzas are small. <laughs> All right. This is your last last stab. Addy, bigger than Texas or not bigger than Texas? Pluto. Bigger than Texas. Correct. Oh, 
good. Addy's three for three? Whew. Addy's three for three. Omar. I've already lost. You've already lost, but in the spirit of education, I'm going to ask you. I'm a you Texan. I will, I will go on. Okay. Bigger than Texas or not bigger than Texas? Mexico. Bigger than Texas. Correct. Good right. job. Addy's our geography whiz. Well, where th- I did grow up on where in the world is Carmen San Diego, so. As did we all. Yeah. Did Omar, Omar, did you? I grew up on a broken, out-of-date globe. <laughs> <laughs> if only you had a dashing, mysterious, worldwide thief <laughs> to teach you all about history, places, and things. Before, before, after my time. Oh, well. Thanks so much for all of your hard-hitting reporting on this. This is great, Eric. No problem. Thanks for having me. A toast, a time when we take a moment to tell you some of the things we're into that we feel you should be checking out. Tali, you want to get us started? Okay, so this video went viral several years ago, specifically in 2011. <laughs> so it's not exactly a new toast, but it's several. pertinent pertinent to our conversation. So I'm sure you guys have seen this. It's a video of a housewife in the 1950s as part of a sanctioned experiment taking LSD. And I just love what she says during her experience. Um, I wrote down a quote when I rewatched the video today, and she says, everything is alive. This is reality. I wish you could see it. I wish I could talk in Technicolor. Made all the more poignant because it's a grainy black and white video. This isn't the kid that went to the dentist and his dad was all drugged up. (laughs) No. What's even cooler about this is that it's the 50s, so this housewife didn't have any social cues when she took it. She didn't know this is how high people talk. Sure. So she was just having a legitimately mystical experience. This is amazing because it's probably like the original, like just what you're talking about with the dentist, the kid just after the dentist, the original one of these videos where you have somebody on camera who is experiencing a state that you as the viewer is not. And that's where the enlightenment and humor and all of it comes totally. from. Yeah. Totally. And, and the people filming are like, I gotta get my hands on some of this stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> was that for some kind of experiment? I guess. Yeah, yeah it was. It was. And it was, um, yeah, man, I don't know where I first saw it. I think on Huffington Post. We'll link to it in our show notes. It's been all over the internet around for years. It's a very beloved snapshot in time. Okay, so my toast actually kind of dates from that time, but it's a modern thing. So I have two uh, books that I wanted to recommend. And these are books that I've been recommending for a decade. Well, now 11 years because my son's about ready to turn 11. Um, and they were both gifted to me when I was pregnant. The first is called An Unconventional Family. And it was written by a woman named Sandra Bem, who with her husband in 1965, set out to raise their children in a non-heteronormative, non-cisgender, gendered environment. And so from the beginning, they were breaking gender norms and they were, you know, you know, if you, when, anytime you open up a kid's book, especially during that time, it's almost always written from a male perspective or it's a princess who needs saving or just all the tropes of gender are really formed at an early age and they were aware of that. And so they just degenderified their home and, and talked about masturbation and menstruation and all of the things that are taboo and that especially during that time you didn't open expose to your kids. Yeah. And so she wrote the book in 2001 and I started and I read it in 2007 and it, it absolutely informed how I, you know, created the environment for my kids. I just wrote a blog post about this on the feminist kitchen where my kids wear fingernail polish and to this day they get called girly and it just is amazing to me that all these years later we still have these you know Hang confines ups. yeah oh I remember when there was a J. Crew catalog snapshot of a mom and her young son uh, painting their fingernails together huge uproar people couldn't believe it on yeah. the internet the other one is probably how dare yeah. he <laughs> paint on his nails so if you are at all <laughs> interested in that kind of stuff it's called An Unconventional Family from Sandra Bem uh, the last one is called Everyday Blessings by John Kabat-Zinn and Maya Kabat-Zinn who you know these are some of the mindfulness pioneers in this country and they wrote um, a, a parenting book about 
about how to be a more mindful parent. And that book, every day I think about whenever I'm, you know, harried and trying to understand this longest, shortest time that we're all experiencing. And how do you, you know, keep keep the faith day after day and not let yourself get burned out while experiencing this miracle of raising kids. So I love those. I'm ordering those today. All right, Omar, what Omar. you got? Well, <laughs> Top that. <laughs> well, we're going to backtrack a bit because uh, a couple weeks ago we did a, a bonus segment you can find online of uh, our word of the year. Uh, Tolly and Addie did that. I, I was indisposed. <laughs> I think I was taking time <laughs> off. Uh, so I missed that. So I wanted to kind of fill in my word of the year for 2018. But first, we actually had some feedback from some readers and listeners on Instagram. Uh, so I wanted to read some of theirs, uh, give them sh- some shout outs here. Uh, market, I market Social said respect. That's a great word for 2018. I think we could have used more of that in 2017. Totally. Uh, we had um, resist from Johanna Yale. Johanna Yale? Resist. And April Klingmeyer said encouragement. And she explained her. She said, retrospectively, my word for 2017 was encouragement. I look forward to summing up whatever 2018 turns out to be in one word. And for now, I'm sticking with last year's word. It's still really potent and applicable. Encouragement. Wow. Could all I use like more it. of that. I like love it. that. Encourage me. I could love use it. Love that. Uh, so my word for this year, I went through a couple of iterations. And what I finally landed on was bulldoze. Whoa. Bulldoze. Yeah. A so verb. conventional, Omar. <laughs> uh, which to me, 2017 was a year of really harsh beginnings and really striking endings in my life. So, you know, we started this podcast in th- 2017. And I think... Um, I'll use that example. Like when we went from Statesman Shots to this podcast, I had so many fears about, oh, we're going to lose our listeners and this is going to happen and it's going to be so much trouble. But it turned out to be bigger and better than I could have imagined. So sometimes you have to tear down the old to make room for the new. Sometimes you have to get rid of the deritus, detritus, detritus, detritus. Thank you, Tali. <laughs> Sometimes you have to find a dictionary and get rid of the detritus in your life in order to create something new. So, uh, so for 2018, I'm going to be less afraid of things ending or things concluding and embrace it a little bit more to make room for new things that might be even better. So wow. bulldoze the old usher in the new for That's such a vivid word, too. You know, you Man. can just see the bulldozer in your brain and it gets to work. It's the, it gets you thinking about the active versus the passive ideas that uh, Omar and I were tweeting about earlier this week. I was going to go with cheese, but I felt that uh, bulldoze was a little <laughs> bit more evocative. You needed an active verb, Omar. <laughs> it has a better story behind it than cheddar, <laughs> for instance. Well, thanks. And you know what? Keep sending us your 2018 words. We, we love to hear them, so yep. tweet us or let us know on Instagram or wherever else uh, you find us what your word is if you're still coming up with yours. That's our show. She's Addie. He's Omar. I'm Tali. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter at loveaustin360. I love you so much. The Austin 360 podcast is produced by Alyssa Vidales. The show is made with support from features editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin 360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com. You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672. This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Lexus of Austin. We couldn't do the show without you, dear listener, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your extra tickets to the Longhorn basketball game. Until next week, we'll see you cheering on the Jumbotron. (laughs) 